Every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on what's best for their next election and nothing else ever. Welcome to the Infinite Block, a podcast exploring the disruptive potential of innovative technologies and policies on cities. I'm your host, Oliver Bruce, an angel investor based in Wellington, New Zealand, and I'm excited to have you here. Hey team, Oliver here. This week I interview Bradley Tusk, who was the early political advisor at Uber and famously took his payment in equity, netting him a 250-fold return. But more recently, invests in startups and regulated industries through his venture Tusk Ventures, as well as leading a project on mobile voting using blockchain. He is one of the most qualified people I know to speak of about the intersection of tech and local politics. And this was an awesome conversation on the nature of the social contract and how cities are adapting to what Azim Azar calls the exponential gap. The gap between the speed of technological change and our institutions' abilities to be able to absorb and respond to that change. I especially love the conversation about crypto and how it'll come to interact with government and cities around the world. As we form up the thesis here about Infinite Block and what we wanted to cover, conversations like this confirm to me that we are definitely on to something. And I'm really looking forward to more conversations like it. So with that, I hope you enjoy it. And here's Bradley. Thank you so much for joining us, Bradley. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Infinite Block and get to talk a little bit about future tech and cities. How are you doing today? Yeah, thanks for having me, man. Yeah, you feeling better? I'm good. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. I had COVID last week. I'm better now. Big week of my family. We got a cat a couple of days ago. Oh, exciting! And we are we are moving apartments on Thursday. Yeah. So you know a lot of a lot of personal people, but but generally good things. Oh, cool. Yeah. Everything's okay. Thank awesome. God. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, it's a total pleasure to have you here. I've I've long wanted to talk to you, especially around the things that we're going to talk about today, mainly because, you know, I I was at Uber in 2015 and. It was a crazy, crazy time. And when, yeah. <laughs> as you know, but it was when I was going through that, it was really like, it was a wider conversation, I think, about, it, well, yeah. it spurred for me, certainly, a wider conversation about tech and cities and how do these things. Where, where in Uber were you? I was in the ops team time. in New Zealand and Australia. Okay. So you guys weren't like aware of the shit happening in the US on the political side? We, well, we, we were getting the updates through the all hands meetings and stuff like that, but not, not on the ground stuff, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I always kind of wonder when people who were like there and sort of normal business side, like how aware of this, all this stuff were you, you know? We were certainly getting a lot of feedback. And, and the other thing as well is that, you know, we, we were then facing pretty similar conversations in Australia and New Zealand. And, and so, yeah. you know, it, it ended up being a, Hey, well, what do you do when you come up against totally corrupt and kind of ossified government institutions? But I'm getting ahead of myself because I feel like I want to start that, out. That's why I wrote my book. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I want to start out. I, I want to read this, the intro thing that you put together in your book because it just, it sums up sure. everything that you've done. And I think we'll kind of, from there, we'll, it's a great jump off. So you've been working in government for two decades. You ran Mike Bloomberg's mayoral campaign in 2009, worked for him in City Hall, yep. two years on Capitol Hill as Chuck Schumer's communications director. You then did four years as deputy governor of Illinois that you got, that was the fifth biggest state in the nation for anybody who doesn't know. Ran a $60 billion budget, all state operations, oversee 70,000 state employees, policy decisions, legislation, and communications at 29, but that you had Rod Blagojevich. Blagojevich, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know a little bit about American political history, not that much. So for those who are in my yeah. boat, who are listening to this from maybe offshore, he was impeached and then imprisoned for corruption. Correct. You had a crazy boss. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he was nuts. 
it was interesting because he had this worldview that was both completely insane. And then when you think a little more about it, maybe quite sane, which is he viewed the job of running for office and the job of holding office as two different jobs. Right. And only saw his responsibility as running for office. Right. And genuinely did not think that he should have to do anything else around that, which was both terrible, but also great because once I figured out that he had no interest in engaging at all, we just got to run the government, man. So like, <laughs> you know, whatever ideas we had, we did. It went in the budget. It went in the state of the state address. It became policy. Totally. So, you know, in some ways it was incredibly liberating. On the other hand, because he's pretty crazy and look, had he pled insanity, I think they would have to have given it to him. It wasn't like he left you alone all day. He would like call you from home all day with paranoid conspiracy theories. Oh, right. So you had to kind of spend half your time fending him off. Yeah. Then half your time running the state. Totally. You ended up working for Henry Stern, the zany and brilliant Parks Commissioner in New York, as you explained him. Yep. And yep. then Ed Rendell when he was mayor of Philly. And then you went... No, when I was in college, yeah. You subsequently left in 2009, 2010. You ended up setting up Tusk Strategies, which became your political consulting yep. arm. And then subsequently yep. you got into doing tech and the kind of intersection for tech and legislation. And subsequently went on to start Tusk Ventures, which invests in working in startups and regulated industries. And yep. Tusk Philanthropies, working to bring mobile voting to the United States as well as running Firewall, which is an excellent podcast. And folks, Thank you. if you like The Infinite Block, you will really like Firewall. We talk about the same things, and I've really enjoyed cool. being able to go through backlog of uh, episodes as well. We just posted a couple of minutes ago, kind of asking the question of whether or not you should be following the Ukraine. Yeah. Like, is it a moral good to do so? Does it make you a better person? You know, I, I took the argument that no, you're probably better off not following most of the stuff. But well, certainly um, for your mental we'll health, it's, it's a fun, it's a fun episode. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, look, I, I mean, I think what we're trying to do with this podcast and why I was so excited to talk to you is really, you know, what we can see is what kind of Azim Azar is calling the exponential gap. It's like you see the pace of technology is starting to really pick up. And yet we have cities that most people live in and the institutions in which we kind of rely on for our governance and, and all that sort of stuff really haven't evolved to be able to accommodate that. And so he calls it the exponential gap. I love that framing. And I'm thinking about it a lot for cities. What does it look like in cities? And I think you're probably one of the best people that I can think of to talk to around that. I'd like to go back to the story of Uber because I think it's such an interesting one and sure. really fascinating. Can you take us through that story? So I've cut it two rounds at Uber. I had the... 2012, 11, the 13, where we kind of ran all the initial campaigns to legalize around the country, yep. and then came back in 2015 to run this New York City campaign. So the first go around, I think the thing that's sort of the most interesting story to me is we would, and we're sort of both infamously and famously now known for this, rather than asking a city, hey, can we please set up shop in your city? We would set up shop without permission. We would start to build a customer base. We knew that the taxi industry would then try to get us shut down. And we knew that this local taxi enforcement agency was invariably going to send us a cease and desist letter. But our view was if we were in there for long enough and people liked the product enough, they would fight for us, right? And we could use them to kind of overcome this very muscular, very tough industry. And that was sort of theory. And then in D.C. in 2012, there was legislation introduced that basically would have put Uber out of, out of D.C., made it possible to operate there. And I remember it was the first time we ever did this. We sent an email to all of our DC customers and said, hey, you're going to lose this thing you really like unless you do something about it. And at the time, it was unsophisticated. We just like gave them like a list of emails <laughs> for city council members. It wasn't even like the you know, press one button yeah, and it goes yeah, everywhere yeah, yeah. now kind of thing. 
and 50,000 organic emails went out in a couple of days. Wow. And it, not only did we beat the bad bill, we passed our own bill, which even the sponsor of the bad bill had to vote for. That was the first time they were like, oh my God, like this is an, an incredible tool, an incredible weapon. And then a few things came from that. So one is that ended up basically being the playbook for how we legalize Uber and ride sharing in every single market in the U.S. So we, you know, Uber is not legal in every market in the world, but it is legal in every single market in the United States. And it's because in some ways, in a country where you really do have rule of law, I believe, and this is sort of the, the fundamental point I try to make on my podcast, my, my students, my column, whatever else, which is at least in the U.S., every policy output is the result of a political input. Every politician makes every decision solely based on what's best for their next election and nothing else ever. If you accept those two things as fact, right, then ultimately, if you're a city councilman and let's say you get four grand a year in campaign contributions for the taxi industry and their lobbyist is a friend of yours that helps you raise some money on top of that, right? Okay. So like all things being equal, you'll hook them up. You'll do what they want because, mm. you know, that's your political advantage. All of a sudden, 7,000 people who are your constituents call, email, text, and say, don't take this thing away. By the way, turn out your whole election, 13,000, 14,000. So where do these people come from? Mm. And in every case, they were like, yeah, I'm not going to get in the way of that. So that's how we want. And then the other thing that really – which, by the way, then became the playbook for other campaigns over the years, FanDuel, Bird, Ease, things like that. And the other part was this is where the whole mobile voting kind of project started, at least as an idea. Yeah, yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. The, We're going to get to this because yeah. I, right. I've got so many okay. questions about the mobile voting thing as well. But I, I mean, okay. what you kind of see is like it's it's a change between what you have, which is you have someone who's in a political system where they're voted in every two, three, four years and it's yeah. relatively yeah. like standard. And then at the same time, you have, you know, well, like tech is changing way quicker than that. And you have to change you know, in some ways we have to like work within those systems. What was the point at which was it like was Uber the first job that you'd done when it was like the intersection of tech and politics like that? No, it was. I mean, look, so I ran my Bloomberg's campaign in 2009. We won. Kind of felt like I'd spent enough time in government and started a consulting firm where it really wasn't tech focused at all. It was just really taking advantage of kind of A, the campaign management skills that I felt like I had and B, between New York, DC, Philly, Chicago, like I'd worked in enough parts of the country that I felt like, you know, I, I can do this stuff anywhere. I'm, I'm not limited to one geography. Mm. And that was the basis of the consulting firm. And then I'm sitting in a meeting with Walmart in early 2011 and a friend of mine called and said, hey, there's a guy with a small transportation startup. He's having some regulatory problems. Would you mind talking to him? I become Uber's first political advisor that day. And then I get really lucky when Travis calls me back and says, listen, I can't afford your fee, which you take equity. I had no idea what equity meant, but thank <laughs> God I said yes. That worked out uh, okay. And that was back back during the Series A. Yeah. And so that was the first experience. And then, you know, another one in the mobility space, which was clear in getting people, you might have seen in the US, where it's a system where through your biometrics, you can basically go through the entire TSA in like under a minute. Oh yeah, the TSA. So, and you pay for yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, the, the fast Well, TSA has a thing called pre-check and then, yeah. and then this is like another level, but they have a lot of customers. And now they're also in stadiums and other types of venues, building security and same thing. I took equity to try to get them to airports. That worked. And then around that time, I met my partner, Jordan Knopf in the venture fund. Jordan at the time was running Blackstone's internal venture fund. And the topic we started just discussing, and we know the answer to it, but was if you truly understand regulation and regulatory risk, and you can actually do something about it, how much of a better investor would that make you? 10%, 20%, 30%? We really didn't know. 
But once we became convinced that the answer was something based on that and kind of Jordan's track record of Blackstone and Uber and whatever else, we went out and it took us two years to do it, but we raised our first fund in 2016, pretty small fund, $35 million, but you know, ended up in companies like Coinbase, Circle, FanDuel, Roman, Bird, Lemonade, just like a amazing hit list of companies. We're, we're in the middle of a race right now, so I'm not allowed to talk about our performance, but those are the kind of deals that, that we were in. And really the way our business evolved is we look at all the same things as any early stage VC. So we invest in seed and series A. And we look at, you know, the TAM, the founder, the underlying idea, all the usual stuff. But then we ask two more questions. One, is there a gating regulatory issue or opportunity that if it were solved, can really drive growth and valuation? Mm. And if so, two, can we solve it? And when the answer is yes to both, that's really when my fund just has a, a different value proposition than any other in the world. So just some examples, we invest in FanDuel legalized daily fantasy sports betting in the U.S. Yep. We invested in Bird, legalized e-scooters, invested in Roman, legalized digital prescriptions, and so on. And so started investing out of our second fund in 2019, doubled the fund, fund size to 70 million. And the only distinction was we wanted to see if we could start leading rounds. We did. We did 19 deals out of fund two and, and led five of them. Really happy about, about all five of them. They've all gone on to you know subsequent significant rounds of financing. And they started investing out of fund three this past April, with kind of two slightly different goals. Again, doubling the fund size. And we look to lead half the deals we do now. And we are also now starting to incubate companies where we see a really big opportunity. We don't think the marketplace is going to solve it or take it up. We'll do it ourselves. And we started in the esports betting space company out of Miami called Grilla. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's kind of how our venture business works. That, that makes a lot of sense to me. And also, as well, I mean, the. <laughs> your yeah incubating businesses i think is is one of the like really fascinating spaces that i think especially when you know yeah, it's so far well it is and i think the ones that i've seen that have been done really well like josh wolf has this one that he did where he's doing like nuclear like waste remediation and they just went out yeah. and they were like there's a giant market opportunity and then like three months later fukushima happened and all of a sudden they just had this like preposterously large outcome because they you know, they effectively have put together the best team in the world on this stuff. And I think you're correct as well. Like when you, you can identify that there are opportunities. The one question that I have in there is like, how do you balance the risk in those investments and the, the risks where you can see that there's like, well, this makes a lot of sense, but there, yeah. there's just, there's a timing thing, right? Because you can, there's so many industries where it's just like, man, sure. it's going to take so, ages. So a few things. So one is there's business risk and regulatory risks. The first thing is just to even make the investment, we've got to think that that both can be overcome or that we're comfortable with both, right? So there might be times where like I see a company, I'm like, oh, it'd be really fun to go out and solve their political problem. But then when we look at the actual economics of the deal, we're like, yeah, we're not going to invest in this thing. So there's, there's that level. Then there's the question of if you invest in a company and you know they're going to have regulatory issues, at what point are they going to have them and does it make sense as a result for you to invest, right? So sometimes it's existential. So like Lemonade, which is an insurance company, portfolio company of ours, you can't sell insurance in the United States without a license by each state to do so. Yep. So it was just a gating issue, right? Until we got them their licenses, they couldn't operate, right? So there are things like that where fundamentally on the front end, you've got to do your regulatory piece. And there are other companies where it's like, you know what, this isn't really going to be a problem or an issue until they really start taking market share away from the incumbents. That's not going to happen until like Series C, Series D, something like that. And so sometimes we come in much later. And also our comms team kind of runs the whole comms shop for 
our portfolio companies kind of from seed through you know, usually B or something like that into B. So we're also working on that all the time. But yeah, it, there's timing. And then the other thing would be regulatory arbitrage and where we think we have more advantage than others. So for example, I don't do biotech and I don't do it for two reasons. One is I don't have the scientific background to really assess it. But two, while it's a heavily regulated process, it's a very straightforward conventional process. It, it's all at the FDA. They use exactly one approach to pretty much almost all of it. And as a result, the biotech funds have learned how to do it. And I don't think I would be so significantly better than them at running these processes that I really have any advantage, right? Or levels of government. So, you know, we almost always will turn down investments if it requires an act of Congress or some sort of major change by the U.S. government, because when the phrase an act of Congress is literally synonymous with a miracle, I can't base an investment strategy on that, right? But state and local, we're very happy to do because we feel like, okay, at least in the U.S., 50 states, hundreds of cities, I can kind of figure out how to create proof of concept and a template in some places for my portfolio company, and then use that to build a larger case. So it's, you know, types of sectors, it's levels of government, it's timing from investment, and then it's even kind of the different risks of the investment side. Yeah, I mean, talking about a really practical example, I came to this from from covering micromobility. Obviously, you have an investment in Bird. You know, the, the, the thing that we could see, right, the biggest constraint on Bird has been city regs. And like, the equilibrium that we've reached feels suboptimal and there's more demand than supply versus what could be enabled. And like, can you talk me through, you know, that story for yourself about how you did the bird investment, whether or not you think that we've actually got to a place that feels like, how did it happen that we got to here? And did you think that it was going to be different? And do you think it will be different in the future? Yeah, it's interesting. So oftentimes I find interesting to sort of use bird and uber as a, a comparison right because i do think a lot changed in the interim period and i think a lot still needs to change going forward so with uber the downside was regulators were just completely in the pocket of the entrenched interest that's a phrase that we call regulatory capture had no interest at all in seeing innovation or change or anything else so on one hand they were very dismissive towards us on the other hand they were such bureaucrats and so naive that they didn't realize that we had like lots of political talent and lots of cash, right? And and loyal customers. And so we just kicked the living shit out of them <laughs> in like every single market, right? And they never saw it coming. Taxi never saw it coming. And we won, but it was a brutal process. Fast forward seven years later to Bird, let's say, and for both better and worse, the regulators are more sophisticated. So the bad news is you're not going to catch them by surprise like we did with Uber. The good news is they understood that if they just blew us off, it wasn't going to end well, for them, mm. right? Then, then all of a sudden, you know, it goes from a positive campaign to a negative campaign. And in some ways, the, the greatest legacy of that 2015 Uber Bill de Blasio campaign is that it was so vicious towards de Blasio that it basically sent a message to every elected official around the world of what kind of risk they can afford to take mm. and not. They were more sophisticated, so they were more willing to deal with us, but at the same time, they were also harder to take by surprise. And then the other thing is with Uber, you know, there wasn't really a separate regulatory framework that was all that necessary, mm. right? It just had to be allowed to do it, yeah. right? Ultimately, you know, ride hailing was an existing industry. Whereas with Bird, there's a lot of valid public policy questions, right? So it's like, should they be able to drive on the street, on the sidewalk, in a bike lane? Should helmets be required? Should insurance be required? Like, should there they are have so to pay many for parking? Should they be de- 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 yeah, parking all that stuff. Yeah, yeah, all that. Thing. 
so I also felt like the regulators had more ground to stand on and say, okay, we need to work through this stuff with you. Cause I felt like, okay, that's fair. Right. Whereas with Uber, it was purely protectionism, yeah. right? We weren't willing to tolerate that at all. So as a result, it's evolved in different ways in every single city, right? So there are some cities that have been like Austin, Texas, like incredibly friendly to it. And there are very, very few limits on, on the product. And the free market works very, very well, but it may not be optimal from a public transportation and, and mobility standpoint, right? There are other cities like New York where... First, we had to go to Albany and legalize electric scooters because they've been banned during the Segway crisis like 20 years ago. <laughs> then we had to convince New York City to start a pilot program. Then we had to win the pilot, the RFP for the pilot program. Now the pilot program is in operation. Of course, it hit right during COVID, so that slowed everything down. Eventually, do I think we get scooters to Manhattan in some capacity? Yes. But you know, that's the case where it's sort of the opposite, where it's a really long, slow process where it may be more optimal for the transit system or the mobility system, but it's suboptimal for birth. Totally. The one thing that I found interesting about micromobility is that, and we saw it with a couple of cities around the world, they just got so pissed off. They're just like, we're just going to go out one night and take all the scooters. And, and they literally like impounded yeah. them. And that changed the political dynamic. Because when I was at Uber, I mean, we, we had the same thing, right? It's like, you can operate completely under, it's like, you're going to literally pull over every white Prius you know, driving around the street right. at night, like there's no way you're going to be able to enforce that. And so there's right. obviously that dynamic as well that I can see that it's a play. The question that I have in here is, is as well, I, and I just came off from listening to the excellent podcast that you did with Henry Greenidge, the new lead for transportation at Tough Strategies, because I think in some ways he was talking about how crews had slowed to a stop in New York and that eventually, you know, yeah. like crews just ended up leaving when they were trying to look at doing testing for autonomous vehicles. Local politics really matter. Do they matter more than they ever have And when it comes to tech? Or do you think that these things are a lot more flexible in the age of social media and things? It's really just a question of who has jurisdiction, right? So anything that touches a consumer in any way is usually gonna have state or municipal jurisdiction of some kind, right? And then there's the question of, okay, if it's a purely enterprise type thing, is the company indirectly regulated in some way? You know, is there some, are they subject to banking laws? Are they subject to health privacy laws or to, you know, in the energy market laws or whatever it is? So that's usually what determines what happens where. But then on top of that, you do have some cities and states, sometimes for better, sometimes for worse, proactively legislating on new technology, either because they want to enable it and bring it to their jurisdiction or because on behalf of somebody, they want to kill it, right? So you've seen much more work done in legislation around autonomous vehicles in states than in the federal government where the DOT has done almost nothing on this issue at all, right? You have seen more work done in some ways on crypto regulation in states where crypto exchanges have to get either a money transmission license or a bit license. And then there's you know various regulations around you know how they operate. Then we've actually seen out of the SEC or the CFTC or anything on the federal level. So on one hand, it, you know, state government has pretty broad reach. Municipal government's pretty broad reach. On the other hand, you can get stuff done, right? Mm. And so like that becomes our preferred playing field most of the time. Yeah. I want to change the tack a little bit here because we've talked almost exclusively about kind of companies that you've invested in or thinking about. And yeah. one of the things that came up with Henry is that things like road pricing, right? So road pricing came up and in some ways you can look at it and say for a whole city to function, that is a way better outcome. You have 
priced yeah. street space, <laughs> which then means that people can actually have more efficient use of the, the roads that they're on. But it's the it's not really an outcome that any one startup or any one company is necessarily going to do. It's like yeah. an enlightened self-interest thing. So curious for you, how do you see the jump happening for a kind of a movement towards enlightened self-interest? It's a good question, right? So on one hand, the optimistic take around all of that is once the genie's out of the bottle with new technology, you can never put it back in, mm-hmm. which means once it's out there and so take dynamic pricing as, as, as the example here, and it gets established as a better way to distribute road traffic and for people to be able to sort of make their own choices and avoid traffic or choose to sit and spend less money. Once that concept's out there, it'll eventually spread to everywhere and everything, right? So the good news is, I think this stuff usually does happen. But on the other hand, you're right, there's a collective action problem often where an individual startup, if they're pursuing a permit or license, a specific kind of regulation, procurement, whatever it is, they'll want to engage in the political process to let let them achieve what they need to achieve. But it's like, hey, if these 10 things happen to be better for our industry overall, the startup world tends to be the worst of all kind of sectors at kind of working together to be able to influence public policy. Yes, not only that, but also as well, like one, you're a nascent business, so you have, you're running on scarce resources. And then at the same time, you're also requiring or you're asking oftentimes, you know, things like road pricing, it's like, it can be regressive for the folks who are in a city and like there's a lot of political pushback mm-hmm. to it, which is why, generally speaking, even though we've had the tech to do it for probably 20 or 30 or 40 years, we haven't done it. Yeah. So I guess my question is around that going like, you know, are there forcing functions that you think will come along through new tech that might yeah. actually allow for that? Some, the way that I think about so, it is like going, you know, auto- yeah. AVs. As soon as we got autonomous vehicles on the road, people are going to say, please give us road pricing. Yeah, I, I think AVs are sort of that turning point for it. But I think also, look, there are things like when I worked for Mike Bloomberg at, at City Hall, he introduced the notion of congestion pricing for Manhattan in like 2005. And it, it was way too early for that issue. Got run out of town, state legislature in Albany. But, you know, like a dozen years later, it ended up becoming the law, mm. right? Still hasn't been fully implemented yet. But, you know, sometimes ideas just need to be let out there and given some time to kind of breathe and evolve. And then eventually they do become public policy along the way. And then sometimes there are just technological shifts that just require changes of behavior. For example, you know, AVs are a good example of that. Or, you know, if half of us retreat for half of our lives into the metaverse, that's going to change a lot of things, right? In the real world and how, how the real world operates. And the third would be just bad things that force change, right? So climate would be sort of the best example here where, you know, at least sometimes people experience a climate catastrophe of some kind, and then that produces changes in zoning laws or, or procurement or energy regulations or whatever it is, right? So I think it kind of comes from those different places. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, look, I, I want to go back to the mobile voting project because I do think this is one of the most interesting things that I've come across as I was doing this research for the episode. So you've got the project for mobile voting. You do it through Tusk Philanthropies. Can you take me through yeah. like why you wanted to do it in the first place? Because I think a lot in this about the social contracts between citizens and governments. And I just think, the yeah. 15 or so years I spent working directly in government. And to be clear, I really saw it from every angle. I worked in city government. I worked in state government. I worked in federal government. I worked in the executive branch. I worked in the legislative branch. I ran political campaigns. Like I really saw it from every conceivable angle. And as I said, mentioned, 
the two things I walked away with is every policy output is the result of a political input. And every elected official makes every decision solely based on impact on next election, which means if you want different outputs, different laws, different regulations, different whatever, you got to change the inputs. And when you think about the way it works right now, it makes total sense that we can't get anything done in this country, right? Because 98, 99% of the districts in this country are gerrymandered, which means that only one party is really ever positioned to win the general election. And turnout in U.S. primaries is on average 10 to 15%. So what that means is the most left-wing or right-wing, depending on whether you're in Texas or Vermont or whatever it is, or whatever special interest can move votes and money you know, in, in that space, has all the power, right? Because all the politicians want to do is keep them happy so they don't lose their next primary. So let me give you an example on both sides of the aisle. So Republicans, by the way, I'm an independent at this point. So if you think I hate your favorite party, I, I do. So, <laughs> you know, but um, you're a Republican congressman from Florida, right? You probably know intellectually that it's fucking crazy that someone can walk in off the street and walk out with an assault weapon, right? With an AK-47 or whatever. This is very hard to believe that anyone thinks that that makes sense, right? However, your district is gerrymandered, so it's a Republican district. Turn out in your primary is 12%. NRA members make up half that 12%. You know that it's nuts. You know that it will take the lives of kids at schools and people at houses of worship and everything else, but you're still never going to vote for an assault weapon ban because you would be automatically gone in your next primary. But imagine if turnout in that same primary were 40%, 50%. Do you know what happened? You would never not vote for the assault weapon ban because if you look at the polling on assault weapons outside of the super far left and far right, it's pretty consistent, right? So if the bad news is every policy output is shaped by political input, but it's also the good news because if you can change the inputs and change the incentives, you could change the outputs. And ultimately, if the only thing that matters to every elected official, at least in the United States, is re-election, that means that the only way to materially change the inputs is by changing the participation in the election that matters, which is typically the primary, right? So when I ran all those campaigns to legalize Uber and ride sharing, one of the things that kind of hit me was like, okay, all these people who are weighing in on our behalf, they're taking time out of their day to say, I want this thing to stick around. My view is probably none of them voted in primaries, right? Like maybe they voted in a presidential primary, mm. but like they weren't, they didn't know, who, they didn't know who their city council member was or their state senator was or any stuff like that. But it turned out, it's not that they were too apathetic to do anything. They were too apathetic to, on a random Tuesday, drive your car somewhere, wait in line, miss work, miss your kid's school, whatever it is, did not want to do that, right? So the thesis was, if people could vote on their phone securely, that could change absolutely everything, right? And so it went from like, mm -hmm. hey, this is a cool idea, to as blockchain technology got better and better, like, oh, this may actually be feasible. So a couple of startups popped up in the US to do mobile voting. And a woman named Shelly Capital works here on my investment team. And her mother is a U.S. senator, also in Shelly Capital from West Virginia. And I was talking to like her mom and her brother once, who's a state politician there. And I said, oh, you know, I'm trying to find some election official somewhere who would let me try out mobile voting in some capacity in their, in their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. And they said, oh, Mac, was going to Mac Warner, the West Virginia Secretary of State, has always been very frustrated about how hard it is for deployed military to vote in elections. Because, you know, by the time their ballot gets mailed in from Kandahar, it's a month later and it goes in the trash, right? So he had been looking for, totally. and Mac's a conservative Republican, which is not my politics, but he had been looking for a solution to that. And so I said, look, if you guys will try this thing out, I'll pay for all of your costs. So 
we funded and they ran the first mobile voting election in the U.S. in March of 2018. Well, I deployed military from two counties in West Virginia to vote on their phones over the blockchain, um, expanded it to 24 counties that fall. And then over the next couple of years, we did elections in 21 jurisdictions across seven different states where either deployed military or people with disability have voted on their phones mainly over the blockchain. Then the next stage we realized is if you were to go look up mobile voting and read the articles about it, they all read the same way, which is half of the articles, me or someone like me, making a whole political argument I just made to you about how this is the only way to end polarization and achieve compromise and consensus in government. And then three computer science Mm -hmm. professors saying how either stupid or crazy I am, right? And that's always the narrative was like, and reporters are are, going to be really lazy. So they, they take the easiest narrative that's available. It's like, you know, opportunity to expand participation against cybersecurity risk. And so I realized that for as long as the, the status quo could hold me off purely by claiming security risk, it would be easy for them to do so, right? So even like in the US when legislators in places like Texas or Georgia pass these restrictions, they don't say explicitly, I don't want black people to vote. They say security, right? They mean I don't want black people to vote, yeah. but they say secure. So, yeah. so I needed <laughs> the integrity yeah, of the election. Not, not and, and the so so yeah, yeah, yeah. I need I need to split that narrative. So we realized that until we built our own mobile voting technology, that at least some cybersecurity experts were part of the process and felt good about it. I was never going to be able to do that. So about a year ago, we I put 10 million bucks into a program to build our own mobile voting technology and to end encrypted. We're doing it with a Danish company called Assembly Voting and a US organization called OSET, uh, open source election technology. We're building this new system, and then we will make it free and open source to anyone around the world who wants it. And my hope is that starts to change the security narrative. And then we've got to pass legislation, at least in the U.S. and every single state, to allow for mobile voting to happen. So we've got a test bill running in the D.C. City Council right now that would enable all District of Columbia residents to vote on their phone in elections. Hopefully we'll pass that. But then I'm going to have to go pass this thing in state after state where you know, it's going to be one thing that unites both sides, right? Anyone who's in power, Republican, Democrat, unions, trade groups, lobbyists, whatever it is, none of them are going to want this, right? Because they all make money on the current system, on the status quo. All I can do is fuck it up for them, right? So they're all going to oppose what we're going to do, which means the last part of the puzzle is, and that's why I'm also eager to talk about this to anyone talk to me about it, is we have to create a movement, right? We need Gen Z to say, Absolutely not. We refuse to accept that we can't vote on our phone. You know, we need an Arab Spring in the U.S. effectively, where people absolutely demand it and won't stand for anything less. And if we can spark, if we can build this technology and come up with a decent legislative plan and then really build momentum and movement among Gen Z right now, I think we have a shot. And by the way, if we don't do something like this, I would take the position that in 20, 25 years, the United States is not even necessarily one country, because you could see a world where we say, we can't have consensus on anything. We hate each other. We disagree on absolutely everything. But divorce is logical, just like sometimes couples get divorced for the same reason, right? So I think that absent something like mobile voting that could radically increase turnout in, in primaries, which then changes the inputs, which then gets you better outputs, this country is not going to. So the question that I have about this is because I love this idea, by the way, and we should have a conversation after this about like, I've got people in New Zealand who I'm talking to about similar things, and I'd love to work out how to bring this to New Zealand. But the next logical steps enable the ability to go directly to people. And, And the reason that we have it be that you have to vote on some random Tuesday and you have to go and take time away from your kids and all this sort of stuff is because we have 
you know, a kind of delegative model of democracy. Do you see, you know, as soon as you can start going, like, we're going to have to start going, can we start seeing referendums every quarter? You know, like, th- that's the kind of model, right, that I can well, see. So, that, really so that's really interesting, right? So this is the kind of thing that my team gets upset when I talk about because they think it's too radical and goes too far, but I find it fascinating, which is the concept of a fully liquid democracy, right? So you could take this thing to its logical conclusion Mm -hmm. and say, not only do we not need like these structured elections, we don't need representatives at all, right? You could just create like a DAO effectively and allow the voters in any given jurisdiction to just decide every single policy by plebiscite on their phone, right? Now, it's probably a very inefficient way to govern, California, to a certain extent, already does a version of this in their referendum process, where so much of California law is shaped by public referendum. You know, obviously, given in your world, Prop 22 and the whole work classification fight in California two years ago was, was a very, very big deal, I'm sure. But ultimately, yeah, you could have a totally liquid democracy where people could just self-govern effectively and, you know, reach a, a, a conclusion based on a democratic vote on every single issue. Look, I don't know that we'll ever get to that point, but I think that's a worthy goal. And I think DAOs are like, I'm very pleasantly surprised by them because, you know, I wasn't even that aware of them a year ago. Oh, let's well, say. yeah. And <laughs> it's a wild they, they world, really, eh? <laughs> Yeah, and they, but they really reflect in many ways the same values that I'm talking about. So, you know, as we've been investing in and working on stuff in that space, it's been good because it helps us see, you know, some other approaches that that are, exist right now that potentially. Totally. Work. I mean, the thing that I can see that is exciting that's coming down the pipe, especially and why I've been super interested in crypto and reason I want to talk to you about that as well as when you get to it is crypto allows us to build new social structures that aggregate and incentivize people to do things. And that's at its core what it is. I mean, that's why it's so interesting. You can start replacing a lot of the trust. But what does a government do at the, lot, at the end of the day? A lot of it has to do with building trust between two people. It's, a, it's the platform on which a lot of other stuff goes and gets built and you have an economy and it's functioning and you have a rule of law and all that sort of stuff. We can yep. start delegating some of that yep. to strongly like well-designed incentives structure systems that you can build in crypto which allow you know reduce the power and the importance of the state in terms of being able to interact with each other yeah i I mean do you think that that squares with your understanding and like how do you think that like the story is going to go as more and more people kind of cotton on to that like how do you think that that's going to start intersecting with our existing government setups yeah so look i mean a few things so crypto i i love sort of thinking about and talking about because to me it is the perfect kind of epitome of, of what you're talking about, right? Which is, I view crypto as the product of a global institutional decline and a global lack of, of faith and trust in institutions since the Vietnam War, right? So at least if you take the United States, you know, over the last 60 years, Americans have very consistently and steadily lost faith in the government, the media, the church, Wall Street, higher education, and as people keep losing faith in central institutions, it, you know, it's a vacuum. It has to go somewhere, right? And so at least some people have said, you know what? I would rather throw in my lot with these people who I'll never even meet, but also agree that a sovereignless currency, that a digital sovereignless currency is actually a better approach and a better system than federal reserves and federal currency and things like that. And, you know, that kind of reflects this notion of like, okay, if the world remains screwed up, people are going to find ways around it, right? They're going to find other ways to deal with it. And I, I think the question then becomes, how does the government adapt to it? So there's two ways it could go, right? So we could do what China did, which is to say, 
cryptocurrency is a threat and a risk, and we will just shut it down completely. By the way, if I were a dictator, I would probably do yeah. that too, right? <laughs> it's probably the right move if you're yeah. China, right? But at the same time, the other way to go with it is to say, okay, the zeitgeist has changed, the views of people have changed, and rather than trying to just prevent them from doing things differently, let's accept that the world has changed and figure out how we regulate it now. So I actually wrote a memo about a month ago that would release publicly about how to regulate the metaverse. And the reason that I started thinking about this was like, you know, what if rather than what we always do, which is we let, you know, technology develop, it starts to get a foothold, and then eventually we try to figure out what to do about it. And usually it's too late at that point for better or mm. for worse. We know that the metaverse is effectively going to have every issue the internet has times yeah. 10, yeah. right? So issues around data privacy, data portability, data ownership, speech rights, consumer protection, work classification, taxation, you know, government services, all these different things are going to be issues and problems in the metaverse. So what if we actually for once got ahead of something and said, hey, this thing is coming. We probably have a couple of years till it's really here. But if it, if it happens at full scale, it's going to be an extremely powerful entity. And we know it's going to create a lot of problems that we could try to preempt on the front end if we were to actually think about things and start to promulgate what the right regulations would be. And so, you know, that's the example. That's the opposite of China, right? That's the example of a government saying technology has changed. The human mindset has changed and human nature even to a certain extent has changed. And we're going to adapt to it to accommodate that change, right? Rather than just trying to put down an iron curtain and, and deny people, you know, the opportunity to better their lives. So you're right. I mean, there's these two very, very different flows and directions. And by the way, it's it's not purely just based on a on a nation by nation level. So, like, yes, the US is better than China when it comes to sort of one approach to the other, but there's plenty of people in the US that want to be able to either either from usually the far left or the far right who believe that sort of any point of view that differs from theirs in any way is immoral, mm. who do frankly want to say, you can't do this or you can't totally. do that, right? And so it's a living, breathing issue with its own kind of, you know, pros and cons, supporters and detractors in every part of the world. I'm sure even within China, there were people in the government who didn't want to ban the mm. car, right? And thought that was a bad idea, right? So they may not speak too loudly because they're, you know, <laughs> no longer in trouble, but like fundamentally, the dynamic that you described, whether people realize it or not, is being fought out and debated in every level of government in virtually every single country in the world. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. I mean, I, I, I'm so fascinated to see what starts to happen when there are groups like Praxis or CityDAO or some of these others where they start actually like squaring together into a city. So your point around like, well, if you... Yeah you're in a voting block and then all of a sudden it's like, no, we've managed to organize 20% of the population because they're all incentivized to effectively cooperate. They can do things like co-opt the existing infrastructure of a democratic system because they know how to effectively get people voted in and, and that sort of thing. I can just start seeing there'll be an assault on the existing infrastructures and, and institutions that we have. Not an assault per se, it will just be a like, we can see a better way to do this. Yeah, right. And by the way, what's wrong with the existing infrastructure going yeah. away, right? Like. I'll give you two two examples in sort of U.S. culture. One's global, the Olympics. Nobody in the U.S. cared about the Winter Olympics at all anymore. And they were in Beijing because the IOC literally couldn't get another bidder. So if nobody wants to host this and nobody wants to watch it, we're going to spend tens of billions of dollars for the benefit of some figure skaters, right? I get that. Like, it was an idea that 
made sense for a while. People enjoyed it. People's tastes and interests changed and it doesn't have to continue or the Academy Awards, right? Like who cares about like a bunch of like old people in Hollywood who want to tell us like, this is the movie you should watch and you shouldn't watch. I don't give a fuck what they think. Like they probably don't share my, you know, my taste yeah. anyway. Right. And so 57 million people in the United States watched the Academy Awards in 1997 or 1998, something like that. And it was less than one sixth of that last right. year. Right. And so, you know, and that's the way it works. Old institutions eventually crumble. New institutions, whether they're maybe they're digital like DAOs or or maybe it's sort of regulatory arms for things like crypto or metaverse come about. Right. And I think the smarter governments are the ones that see this coming and try to actually facilitate it rather than just trying to, you know, stick their finger. Yeah, in the yeah, totally. Have you made any investments in the fund into crypto, like specifically crypto plays? So crypto plays for sure. So we're in Coinbase, we're in Circle, we're in Radar, we're in an NFT company called Bids, but not, no. So and he, here's why, which and we've thought about it, but I feel like my expertise is taking a company and saying, okay, at least when it comes to regulation, government, politics, media, I can meaningfully improve your odds mm-hmm. of success, right? And then I invest in something because I know that my work is going to go towards trying to make that thing a success. And if I'm working on it, my team's working on it, and if we're doing our job well, we increase the chance of success, right? So that's logical to me. I have no idea whether Ethereum's going to go up or down on any given <laughs> day, right? So like, I don't buy or trade currency because I have no no competitive advantage at all. Look, I don't buy or trade stocks either because I don't feel like I really have much of a competitive advantage. So like, I invest in stuff usually fairly early. Maybe I'm wildly overweighted in venture capital, but my financial advisors can complain to you about yeah. that. But putting putting that part aside, I like to invest in stuff where like, this is a cool idea. It could be really big if it works out. And here's how I can help make it work, right? That tends to be the most interesting stuff for me to invest in. I, I, I'm curious, have you had a look at Helium? No, oh, what is you're going to love Helium. But it's effectively, they're building a wireless network. Okay. They're crypto incentivized on the back end. So they effectively say, if you put up a radio yep. tower, we'll pay you in crypto. And on the front end, that okay. said, you know, if you want to use our radio network, you just pay us. And it's a, you know, the reason I came across this is because of micromobility. We need a low cost way to track e-bikes. And, you know, if you go and try to right. connect them to a 3G, 4G network, it's $30, $40, $50 a year for line charges and data and all that sort of stuff. Helium, you can do it pinging every 10 seconds for a dollar a year. So wow. they use something called LoRaWAN, which is a very established IoT technology, but they hadn't until now had a business model that allowed them to build one single integrated network. They've gone from zero to the world's largest contiguous wireless network in the space of like two years. And they're about to launch 5G. Where are they based out Oh, and San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. They've, okay. just, they've just received a whole new bunch of funding as well. I'll, I'll send you some stuff after. The, the thing I think is interesting yeah. for you is because yeah. they've taken advantage of the new open standard for 5G to build out a backend for 5G. Yeah. So they're building a small set network, which allows, you know, AT&T and Verizon and all these others can build 5G networks in the cities, but it doesn't make sense for them to like build 5G everywhere else because the CapEx is really high and the, you know, effectively. So what they're looking for is open neutral networks and somewhere like 5G, Helium can come in and play in that space. And they'll, they'll be looking to expand around the world as well. I just think it's it's one of the first crypto companies that I've seen where you go that's providing real world service. It's, a, it's an intersection of an interesting regulatory thing where people kind of created 5G to make it work. So, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's that's the question. Where can crypto and blockchain be applied to actually add value? Like, like voting is, I think, totally. a good example, right? What you're talking about is a good example. So there are things, there are, you know, there's three versions of this, right? So there's 
crypto is an asset class, right? And that's just people, whether they're good at it or just find it fun, wherever else, speculating on, on crypto every single day, right? Then there's crypto as a currency, which doesn't really exist yet, but you're seeing countries like El Salvador adopt it. And I do think that the, one of the key things of the metaverse is it's when crypto goes from an asset class to an actual currency, right? Because once you're in the metaverse, there shouldn't be any reason why anything couldn't be transacted with yep. crypto, yep. right? So all of a sudden it becomes a form of actual payment. And the third would be things that you utilize the underlying technology to create some sort of societal benefit or some sort of sustainable business. And maybe it's not a fintech business or even a venture backed business, but it's, you know, here's how this technology can be really helpful. Like I'll give you a, a way that wouldn't make any money at all, but like artworks, the provenance of the work, who's owned it over the last couple of hundred years or whatever it is, blockchain is the perfect way to record all that. Now, is there a big enough market for that? I can't imagine, mm. right? But like in the US, we have this thing called title insurance, which is a, just a stupid, corrupt thing. But nonetheless, for as long as it exists, putting on the blockchain makes a lot of sense. Or like we work with a major crypto company in a major state DMV. It hasn't been announced yet, so I'm, I'm being a little vague. To put the entire DMV is the driving yeah. you know agencies in the US to put the entire record on the blockchain, right? That makes yeah. sense. So that's that third category. In some ways, it's really the most important yeah. one, right? Because it asks the class, who cares? And even as a currency, like, great, but there's lots of ways to pay for things already. Like, it's not that shocking. Totally. But it's really the, the third category to me that's, that's really worthwhile. As I've thought about crypto over the years, the thing that I can think that, like, governments really need to work out how to do is to think of themselves as trust arbiters and that they're a trust platform and to make it easy for people to be able to trust each other. When you think about a functioning like economy, right? Like yeah. it's, it works because we all trust each other and we know that like, I'm not gonna come along and just stab you randomly, you know? It's like, we have all these rules, we agree right. to them. And over time we, we work out how to become more and more sophisticated in, in that interaction. Hey, look, we've got a couple of minutes left and I'm loving this. I wish we could keep it going, going. But I wanna just ask, like to finish up, do you think that there are historical parallels to like the time that we're facing in terms of a lot of technological change pushing up against the status quo and regulation? And it's like, are we going through something unique? Yeah, well, it's even even a little more broader than that. And bear with me a little bit. I, I, this is a concept that I really haven't articulated yet. I've just been thinking about. So it's, it's pretty rough. But effectively, I would argue that 1945 to 2020, both in the U.S. and really at least in the entire Western world, if not the world overall, was kind of the golden mm. age, right? Where... There wasn't that much war. There was some war, right? But but not that no world wars or anything like that. There were no massive plagues or pandemics or anything like that. The standard of living grew consistently in every part of the globe, and especially in, in poorer countries where things like illiteracy or infant mortality or you know lifespan or whatever it is all improved really materially. People got more and more rights, right? So you know, like in the U.S. People of color, women, gays and lesbians, whatever it is, all have significantly more rights. And I think human rights is a bigger priority globally. Still not complete, but but nonetheless a bigger priority. And so you had this kind of golden era where even if it felt shitty while it was happening, people probably, you know, from an objective, you know, quantitative standpoint, did better than they ever had at any point in, in human history. And I think 2020 is sort of obviously... The, the back end of it, because A, it's a global pandemic, so it's, it's more serious effectively than anything we had seen since the Spanish flu. B, 
it plays into this era of tremendous technological change, which I think ultimately can be very, very good for society. It always has been historically, if you look back over the last couple of hundred years. But, you know, when you live through it, it's messy, right? When you're the beneficiary of 50 years later, it's like, oh, that was great. I'm so glad that worked yes. out. You know, so for example, one reason that I initiated the concept of universal basic income is I do believe that we're going to have these tectonic, these tectonic shifts in industry and individual people will get left behind. Now, their kids will end up with much better jobs as a result than, than they would have had otherwise because of these new technologies. But you've got to find a way that as we go through these massive shifts into AI, into autonomous vehicles, into the metaverse, whatever it is, that there's going to be a lot of job loss associated with it. So that's the second pillar, which is you've got health, you've got massive technological change. Third would be climate, mm -hmm. right? And so like my kids are 15 and 13. They live in existential fear of climate yeah. change, right? And they really assume, and they probably right to, that it's going to have a material impact on their lives in a, in a negative way. And as a result, the kind of peace and prosperity that we enjoyed from, say, 1945 to 2020, uh, even if part of the way we got there was, was by destroying the climate, um, won't exist for them, right? And then the fourth thing would be the com combination of the collapse of institutions that we talked about before, combined with, with the rise of the internet and social media, um, because you know we live in a world where everything is so interconnected that everyone feels worse than they ever have, mm. right? Everyone is more depressed, has more psychological, mental health problems, hates everyone else a lot more. It is, you know, more dissent, everything. Yeah. And I think a lot of that is because of the platforms. Now, I do think there are regulatory changes that could help with that. And, and you know, I, I support those when we talk about it. But like overall, like the the biggest difference, I would say, in the last 25 years is cable news and platforms like mm. Twitter, right? I think they have utterly destroyed, you know, both democracy and, and in large ways, kind of how society works, right? So if you combine all four of those different factors, then I think it's really fair to say that we are living in an incredibly unique and perhaps incredibly difficult mm. moment, right? Nor do I think, by the way, that we're in the clear on pandemic. So yes, maybe we're at the very end of COVID, God willing, we are. But, you know, there's been others like SARS and MERS and bird flu or whatever. There's been pandemics over the last decade, even they're smaller. And you know, the ROI, if if you were thinking about for the if you were COVID, yeah, right, your ROI was incredible. <laughs> right. Like you shut down the whole yeah. globe. Right. Crazy. You know, and so to me, I don't know why bad actors, whether they're nation states or terrorist groups, wouldn't say, why am I going to bother with a bomb? I, I can introduce a pandemic and cause a million times more damage, yeah. right? And so I just can't imagine that you're not going to see. And by the way, as I understand it, every major country in the world has biochemical weapons and, and, and biological weapons that, that they can use. So, you know, whether COVID came out of a market in Wuhan or a lab, mm you know, this stuff's going to keep happening potentially, yeah. right? And so, and by the way, if this keeps happening and the metaverse is what we think it could be, it drives an even bigger shift societally because it really sends everyone not only indoors like we were during COVID, but like literally inside the metaverse itself. Yeah. And especially when people earn in the metaverse. I mean, that's the thing that I think a lot of people haven't like yeah. grokked is like Travis Scott did like metaverse concerts and for Fortnite. He yeah, earned like a hundred. My, my he, he earned a hundred and forty million dollars for five concerts. Yeah, 
So my son one day comes to me in the middle of the day. So I just went to a Travis Scott concert. He's like, what do you mean? You didn't even leave yeah. the, the, the house. He said, I went on Fortnite. But to him, he really felt like he went to the yeah. concert. You know, and obviously now in real life, I would never let my son go to a Travis Scott concert because people, you know, yeah. trample with them. <laughs> but like, yeah, you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, it had this, it was to me the first real time that I started to grasp what I think the metaverse could mm. be, where it was like, because, you know, when I, when you look at Fortnite as a parent, as a video game, like, okay, your kids have lots of video games. and This one seems to suck up more money than the other ones do. But like, but then when you look at it from the perspective of this platform, mm that can convene people and convey a message or provide entertainment, whatever it is, like, holy shit, that's incredible. Totally. You know, it's it's the, yeah, you can go to a concert, but it's the, you know, you and I can hang out and we can talk about stuff and we can convene global, you know, investment councils from it, it, all of these sort of things that we've never been able to do yeah. before in a way that I just think is going to be incredibly exciting and very challenging when it comes down to, okay, cool, and we have to still go out and we've got these existing institutions and, and what does the city become in all of that question? So anyway, that's the thesis of, for Infinite Block. Uh, thank you for coming to yeah. my TED Talk. You know? I, I, I buy into yeah. it, man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Hey, well, look, this has been such a pleasure. You are a wealth of knowledge and I think you're, you're right right on the edge of the, all the very interesting things and I'm, I'm really looking forward to hopefully having a chance to talk to you about further about some other things as well that we've, we've got. Yeah, would love to, and, and thanks for having me on. Actually, one of these days, the pandemic will away completely, and you'll find yourself indeed, in New York. Indeed, cool. All right, hey, thanks so much, Bradley. Sounds good.